Welcome back. I'm Heidi Higgins, and you are listening to K-12 on Learning. The topic of today's episode reminds me of when I was speaking to a group of families who had gathered at an information session to learn about online education. My two youngest daughters had joined me. I had completed my part of the presentation, and it was time for questions. A woman stood and she asked if she could ask my young daughters some questions, since they were the ones that were schooled online. I invited the girls up and the questions came. The woman asked, what is the worst thing about schooling online? (laughs) As you might imagine, my mind raced through the myriad of things my daughters could potentially say. As I began to perspire, my youngest answered with her matter-of-fact voice and looking straight at me. She said, the thing I hate most about schooling online is that there are no sick days. My mom says I can read in bed. (laughs) Thankfully, my children were not sick very often. And if they had a mild case of something, I did tend to put them in their beds where we would read and continue to learn as they were able. Good health and a healthy home environment are critical for learning. But sickness happens. The Department of Education noted that in September through November last year, schools reported chronic absenteeism due to sickness much larger than in years previous to the pandemic. While some of the numbers are receding, it's still cold and flu season, and the need for timely medical care and knowing who, where, and when to turn when sickness happens is our topic for today. I have invited primary care physician, Dr. Devon from Colorado to join us. He has worked in rural and now more urban environments and has noticed the changes in accessibility to a doctor and how medicine is practiced today. He has five children, three of whom attended an online school. Dr. Devin, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you with us. I understand that you have seen some changes in medicine since you started practicing about seven years ago. Yeah, it's changed. And my practice has changed as well from a rural medicine doctor to a more urban doctor. It's changed with COVID, the hours that have been required, and really the way that we handle sick patients has changed. Is it still important to have a family physician? So a family medicine doctor is really there to coordinate care and help you understand the care that you receive from specialists. If you go to a specialist, sometimes they don't know your entire history. They're focused on your joints. They're focused on your low back. They're focused on your pain in your hands. But they don't understand that you also have heart disease or depression or other issues that affect your health. That's not their focus. And family medicine is to focus on everything to bring it all together to make sure your health is the primary focus. I think it's maybe an age-old dilemma. When should a parent take a child to a doctor? So pediatric patients are wonderful. They get sick fast and they get better fast. (laughs) And they get really sick fast. In my opinion, the parents should take a pediatric patient to the doctor when they are worried. When I treat a pediatric patient, I treat both the parent and the child. Part of it's the fear from the mom or the dad in what's going on with my child at this moment. They're not acting like they should. And if that's the case, we can take a look and just to make sure that it's a normal thing. And if it is, I love telling patients that you don't have to worry about it. This is normal. 
these are things that you should watch for. If things change, come back. As opposed to having them sit at home worried all night and come in later the next day and find out that they should have been worried and come in sooner. So when a parent is worried, that's the time to go to the doctor when a child's sick. Otherwise, yearly checkup after the age of three is considered sufficient to make sure that we're catching problems that can develop, such as attention deficit disorders, depression, eating disorders, things like that. Once a year is enough after the age of three. Under the age of three, there's a schedule that we follow closely because that's a critical time for development. If I can't get into my primary health care physician, do I choose an urgent care or the emergency room? That is a great question. You have to understand the question that when you get to the emergency room, the doctors are focused on, are you dying or not? And that really is the question they're asking. They're not asking if you're sick or not. They're asking, are you dying or not? Because that's what an emergency room is all about. And because of that, they're looking at tests of what's going to kill you first. And I know that sounds bad, but what, what they're looking at is, is this a critical issue? Or is this something that isn't that serious and can be put off till later? Uh, urgent care still focuses kind of more like a family medicine doctor where what's the most common thing that's causing this? So because the, the question for emergency room is, are you dying or not? If your question is, is this really serious? That's where you should be. If it's my child has a cold and probably needs something to get over this, an urgent care would be more appropriate. You know, they're not breathing too fast. They're not struggling in other ways to simply take a step back and see what's most common, which is a virus or something like that. An urgent care would be the place to go. But again, if, if they're worried about a life or death situation, that's where emergency rooms thrive. And that's, that's what they're there to answer. This seems to be a big year for colds and flu and absenteeism from schools and work. What's causing some of that? There's a couple of different theories there. One is the fact that we're exposed to these viruses all the time. If you send your child to a daycare or even to preschool or to kindergarten for the first year, that first year where they're out of your care, the statistics show that they can be sick with up to 20 viruses. Each virus lasts 10 days. So out of 365 days, a child in their first year at a daycare or first year in school could be sick 200 of them. And the virus can be virus after virus after virus. The last three years, we have sheltered everyone and that number has been low. And so now we're all playing catch up to be exposed to the number of viruses that are out there. Because we're all playing catch up, it's been a more severe year. That's the leading theory at this time is that we just haven't been exposed to as many viruses as we normally are. Now, after that first year, it goes down to usually 15, which isn't that much of an improvement, but that's 156 days as opposed to 206 days. Something I've noticed and I've seen in the headlines is RSV. But this time I'm seeing teens and adults along with that headline. Is that unusual? Before, we didn't test much for RSV after the age of five, because we didn't consider it that important. This year, it's been combined with the COVID test. So the big test that everybody is using combines COVID, RSV, influenza A, and influenza B. So we test for four things at the same time. And because we've been using that test, we're finding even 90-year-olds that are admitted with RSV pneumonia. So 
yes, someone can get RSV. Typically, it's been considered that the RSV for adults was not as serious as for kids. Now that we're testing, we're seeing that maybe that might not be as true as we thought it was. What do you recommend you do for a child who has a fever? So let's define a fever. A fever in medicine terms is 100.4 and above. So a normal body temperature is 96 degrees. So up to 100.4, we consider normal body temperature, okay? And anywhere in there can be, some people call it a low-grade fever. It's not technically a fever in medical terms until it's 100.4. So before that, if it's in those higher numbers, like let's say 99, but not over that 100.4, giving them fluids, letting them take a bath, trying to encourage not covering up with so many blankets or things like that can help them lower the temperature on their own. The body immune system seems to work better at those degrees. Allowing it a little high up to that 100.4 is actually recommended because that's the body trying to fight the illness. After 100.4, that's when you start to see things like the child getting a little more lethargic, not acting like themselves. And in that situation, that's when you can start to treat it. Between ibuprofen and Tylenol, which are the two over-the-counter drugs that most people use, Tylenol is considered better for breaking a fever. Ibuprofen is considered better for pain treatment. So if they're teething, ibuprofen may be where you want to go. If they are simply having a fever, Tylenol would actually work better. The dosing on that is important. Under the age of one, we really don't like to give ibuprofen because the kidneys aren't fully developed. And so Tylenol is still the better choice under the age of one. And then, of course, always based on their weight, which if you have questions, your primary care doctor can answer that, or even the on-call doctors from most offices can answer how much time I'll have to give somebody. What can we do for a child who has the stomach flu? So for some reason, kids vomit more than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I remember and, that. <laughs> and that gets back to the kids get sick fast, but they also get better fast. It may be an underdeveloped stomach. It may just be the way that they're diaphragm closes off the top of the stomach. We don't really know a great reason for why they vomit more, but they do. The vomit isn't necessarily bad. As a matter of fact, most people feel, most children feel better afterwards. So encouraging them to rest, drink things that aren't going to stain your carpet if they accidentally don't make it to the bathroom and let them relax is really the best thing you can do. And the old advice of crackers and soda it does work. Citrus drinks, so a little bit of lemon and water or a little orange and water can also help calm stomach. Ginger is another thing that we often use to help. My child is feeling better, so can I stop giving them their medication? So that depends on the medicine. If it's Tylenol and they're feeling better, yes. That's not an issue. If they're not having a fever, they don't need the Tylenol. Antibiotics are different. So we give antibiotics and we give it over a course of several days in an effort to try and make sure that we completely kill the bacteria. So if you're on an antibiotic, if the child's on an antibiotic, they should take it until the course is done. What do you wish patients would do as they bring themselves or their children in to see a doctor? Knowing their history is probably the best help for me as a doctor. Medications that they have not tolerated well in the past is helpful. A minute or so before we enter a room to review the chart, when they know their history of penicillin does not sit well with them or they had a reaction to a certain drug class of medicines, that's helpful. Normally, an electronic medical record is going to have that. But if you're in an urgent care where they don't have your records, it's important to know those sorts of things so that you can update the doctor. 
and he can make a better choice. There's always an alternative to medicines. And that's really what my job is as a doctor, is to weigh the illness and to weigh the complications of the medicine and decide which is better. Do we give medicine because it will help the illness without too many side effects? Or are the side effects so severe that the mild illness isn't worth it at this point in time to take the medicine? And balancing those two things helps me out a lot. So knowing your history, knowing how you respond to medications helps me make a better choice on the type of medication or if medication is warranted. What is the number one thing you see teenagers for? Most teenagers that I see now, there are recommended well checks every year for a teenager. Probably the most common thing that I see as a complaint is ADHD which I do treat, helping them stay focused in school and helping them achieve the standards and things that they want to achieve and depression slash anxiety. That's interesting. Is that more so recently or is this a common thing with teenagers? Teenage years are hard. And I usually start with my teenage patients telling them that. And it's hard because they're so focused on the monumentous task of finishing high school and starting their life on their own that they can't see that there's something beyond that. It's a hard years. And if you remember back to your years, it seemed like that was the most important time of your life. It's a huge transition period from the time where you're under mom and dad's care to you're expected to act like an adult and, and take responsibilities into your own hands. So I think it has always been an issue. There are some things that have made it harder recently. The teenagers of today are not like the teenagers of... 20, 30 years ago, when I was a teenager, when I came home from school, I could watch a TV show, do my homework, and totally unplug from the world and the stress of high school. Nowadays, they come home and the school follows them. It's amazing. I have teenagers myself. They have assignments that are still due at 10 p.m. at night. I remember filling in high school when that bell rang at three o'clock, I was done for the day. Now, with electronic assignments and things like that, they are still working until 10 p.m. at night trying to get assignments in on time. Or on the other side, the social aspects where I could escape and go home and be done for the day. They have cell phones and media and social accounts where they're connected 24-7. They don't get to disconnect and take time for themselves unless they're consciously doing so by turning off their electronic devices and finding a release. Dr. Devin, thank you for these answers. Do you have any advice that you could offer families of how to select a doctor for their family, a primary care physician or a family care doctor? A couple of things. If your primary care physician isn't working for you, you can always find another one. As doctors, I, I had a partner who had a very different personality than me, and I loved him. He was a great partner, so I'm not saying anything against his personality, but some patients gravitated towards him and they preferred him over my personality. And other patients left him and came to me because of personality. You're talking about some very intimate facts, some very private things sometimes. So finding a physician, if possible, and there is a physician shortage, but finding a physician that you can open up to and talk and trust is important. So in choosing a family care physician, you don't have to go with the first one you see. It's okay to see who fits your personality because once you find that person, that's a relationship that can develop over many years as opposed to someone who's just there for limited advice that you just never really connect with. 
Thank you for listening to K-12 On Learning, sponsored by Stride. To learn more about online public schools powered by Stride K-12, Stride Career Prep programs that foster lifelong learning, or any of the private school or individual course offerings, please go to stridelearning.com or k12.com. Special thanks to Tree K Studios for providing the music for us. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and feel free to leave us a good review. We hope you'll join us next time for K-12 on learning.